So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to John 19, we'll pick up there. And Father, I, I do join my heart with, with Les and with Rachel and with, and with our entire family, our bridge family here, Lord. We join our hearts together to come before you in worship of the name of Jesus. And our worship does continue, Lord, through the singing, through the prayer, through the teaching of your word, and into our lives we are not limited by a certain amount of time as Les prayed. This is how we live. Teach us to live worshiping you, always worshiping you, Father. And we pray tonight's teaching will will elevate the name of Jesus even further in our hearts and minds as we adore you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I was sitting back there during worship thinking that the hour is late in these last days. The hour is late. And I don't know how much time we have. You know, will it be over in September? Will it be another year or two or ten or twenty? I have no idea. The Lord hasn't told me specifics, but He has told us about the seasons. He has shown us the signs of the times, and these are certainly the times of the signs. And so, the hour is late in the last days. And what's so fascinating to me is what we're studying tonight actually began in the early morning hours of the last days. If you think about it, from the point of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus to that resurrection moment, that that morning where He resurrected from the grave, that began the last days. That kicked it truly into high gear. And so we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. But when you look at the overall of of history of mankind, 6,000 years, well, 2,000, yeah, we're in the last third. But we are in the last of the last third. And I won't go all into that tonight, but I I truly believe that. I think think the scriptures give indication of that in many different places. But tonight, our study takes us back to the beginning of the end, to the start of those days. John chapter 19, picking up in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. The Romans typically let the bodies hang, alive or dead. They let the bodies hang on the crosses, even after death, as carrion for birds of prey. Or wild animals to come pick at the flesh and dig into the meat that is left hanging there. It was a a final humiliation for the criminal who was crucified. But the Jews had a different way of doing things. They wanted the bodies removed. Not for compassion, but for religious law. The body could not hang overnight on the tree. As we've talked about, as we've seen, the Deuteronomic law that says you can't leave the body of, of, a, of a criminal, of someone cursed by God, on a tree overnight. You've got to take it down. And so the Jews wanted the body down. It was especially an offense against Torah on preparation day. Because this was the time for preparation for, for the Sabbath 
preparation for the ongoing feast of unleavened bread in that Passover week that they were celebrating. So the bodies needed to come down, but they should have been dumped in an unmarked grave. That's typically what you would do. Take all the bodies of however many were crucified and what was left of them after the animals got to them, you would peel off the crosses and just toss into an unmarked grave grave and, and bury it over. But with Jesus, it is as Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 53 verse 9, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet He was with a rich man in His death. How do you work out a prophecy like that? His grave is assigned to the wicked, so He should be buried with wicked people, but He's going to be with a rich man. And along comes Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew 27, verse 57 tells us he was a rich man. And Joseph came asking for the body of Jesus. And in fact, we'll find out, Joseph of Arimathea had his own tomb, unused, unspoiled, waiting to be used. He would loan it to Jesus for the weekend. Joseph of Arimathea came asking for the body of Christ, and then Nicodemus joined him, bringing that package of 100 pounds of burial spices for the linens. Now, the Jews didn't embalm like the Gentiles, like the heathen did. The heathen would drain out all of the blood and then take out all of the organs and then fill the body with sawdust or some other kind of filling and then bury them that way. Or or they would cremate them. Not the Jewish people. They would wrap the body with linen soaked in myrrh and aloes and strong spices. And this wrapping then would dry and harden and would literally form a linen shell, a cocoon of sorts, around the body. So here come Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to do this work. And in verse 41 it says, Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Matthew's account, Matthew 27, verse 59, says Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Joseph and Nicodemus, Joe and Nick, we'll call them, are two of the most unlikely disciples of Jesus in his time. Both were Pharisees. Both were card-carrying members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And both were secret disciples. Followers of Jesus. Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. Joseph of Arimathea following along, hearing the teachings. Obviously, he had an affection for, he had a belief in this Jesus. Obviously, these two men were following. In fact, Luke tells us, Luke 23.50, that Joseph was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to the council's plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was, listen to this, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And that's what makes the difference. Why would this man of the Sanhedrin suddenly shift and become a follower of Jesus? Why would he have this allegiance to Jesus? Because he was waiting for the kingdom. Because he was looking for Messiah. Because he wasn't settled in the ways of the Sanhedrin, in the ways of the Jewish ruling council and the Pharisees. That wasn't the end game for Joseph of Arimathea. No, Messiah was the end game. The kingdom was the end game. 
And if you want to truly breed righteousness in your life, wait for the kingdom of God. That's what does it. John writes in 1 John 3 verse 2, We know when He appears we'll be like Him because we'll see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. The hope of the coming of Christ has a purifying effect on the follower of Jesus. Not a numbing effect like some would think. There are those who who think that to be focused on the end times, to be one of those pre-trib, pre-millennial preemies, <laughs> means that you must just be numb to the things of this world and your head's in the clouds and you're not really focused on what's going on. And of course, you're not going to be caring about the poor and the needy and the things that really need caring about in this world. Au contraire. John says just the opposite. You focus on the kingdom. In fact, I believe Jesus said you seek first the kingdom. And His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You'll be taken care of. More so, the more we seek the kingdom and His righteousness, the more we want to take care of the needs of those around us. The more we want to bring people to Jesus, whatever it takes, however we, we can. That desire is there. Seeking the kingdom. You are right to seek the kingdom. You are right to long for the rapture of the church. You are right to look forward to the millennial reign of Jesus. You're right to do so. For in so doing, you are made even more righteous. Oh, not by your actions, but by your love of Christ. So Nicodemus comes along, and he, along with Joseph, also has an interest in the kingdom. If you go back and read John chapter 3, when Nick came to Jesus at night, that's precisely what they talked about. The kingdom. Jesus engages Nicodemus in conversation about the kingdom. You cannot enter the kingdom unless you're born again, Jesus says. And the whole point is he knows what's on Nicodemus' mind. The kingdom, the kingdom. So both men were secret disciples of Jesus. Both were seeking the kingdom. And they were secret disciples, clandestine followers, until this moment. What changed? What turns the secret follower into the overt follower of Jesus Christ? What could have pulled them out into the open? I mean, honestly, to care for Jesus' body in this way would risk reputation. It would risk standing, if not their own lives. Jesus had just been crucified, and now they are aligning themselves with Him by showing this care for Him. Why now? What happened? What changed? The cross. The cross happened. The crucifixion of Jesus had taken place. And I point that out just to say never underestimate the changing power of the cross. The power of the cross to draw people into the place of faith. The power of the cross to to generate belief, even on the most unlikely of people. You, You may have someone who's a friend of yours who's incredibly religious and staunch and legalistic. Not very worshipful of Jesus, but man, they're doing all the right things. And you just wish that they could grasp grace. How do I do that? How do we go about that? Point them to the cross. You have friends or family who are unbelieving, who could really care less about Jesus. Point them to the cross. Because the cross, for those who care less about Jesus, the cross shows them that He cares more for them than they know. The cross happened. Joseph saw it. Nicodemus saw it. 
And when no other message gets through, the message of the cross does. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Don't misunderstand that. The cross is the power of God. I don't know how to tell people about Jesus. Tell them about the cross. It's the power of God. There is power in the message of the cross. Beyond all of our arguments and all of our ideas and all of our debates that we might have with people over the rights and wrongs and the moralities and all these other things, if we will bring them to Jesus and the cross, there is power there. Power to change a life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why, Paul? Because that's the message that gets through. That's the one people still need to hear in the waning hours of the last days. They still need the cross. We're still talking about the cross 2,000 years later. You could say, in this moment, Joe and Nick had crossed over. They had come into a place now. And the cross had drawn them out of themselves. And that's what happens when a person recognizes the love of God in Jesus on the cross of Calvary. But before we go out of this section, there's something else the cross does. There's something else that we see in in Joseph and, and in Nicodemus. And that is that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross causes us to care for the body of Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary causes us to care for the body of Christ more than for ourselves. To put the fellowship ahead of self. To put the church ahead of personal needs. See, Paul wrote in Colossians 1.18, Christ is also head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. The cross calls us out and causes us to put Christ and His body first. And don't forget the church is His body. Well, uh, that guy in that church over there bugs me. The church is His body. Yeah, she's on my nerves. The church is His body. Well, I'll go, but I'm not sitting near them. The church is His body. And what we see here in this beautiful representation that only John tells us about is the extreme loving care of Joseph and Nicodemus for the body of Christ. And there's a great parallel here. When you see the cross, when you recognize the sacrifice, it makes you want to love His body. And we are the body. The more you love Jesus, the more you're going to love His body. And by the way, the less you love His body, the church, the less you love Jesus, the crucified Savior. Caring for the body. Do you care for the body of Christ? Do you wrap your arms around the body of Christ? Do you anoint the body of Christ? Do you seek to sweeten the body of Christ? By loving the brethren and the cisterns. Sisters. Sisters. I don't know what the word is there. First John chapter 3, verse 16, John writes, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He says in 1 John 3, 18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. One more thing before we move on. 
Look at verse 41 again. In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. We didn't know this before. Only John tells us this. In the garden was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Remember that tomb, Matthew tells us, Luke tells us, belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man. And verse 42 says, because of the Jewish day day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. In 1843, British General Charles Gordon was stationed in Jerusalem. And he began pondering these things. He began sitting out. He would sit out on the Mount of Olives and just look out over Jerusalem and have daily devotions and read his Bible, a very, very spiritual man. And he began to read through John. And as he read this section, and as he considered Scripture, even going back to Leviticus, he started to realize that the place of the traditional tomb that Constantine's mother had set the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Some of you have called it the church of the Holy Smoke. If you've been in it, you know it's very smoky and hazy and it's, it's a dark place. I hate to put it that way, but I've been inside. And he would look across at the church of the Holy Sepulchre and it didn't fit Scripture. And he pondered this and others had pondered it as well. But Charles Gordon became convinced of the location of Golgotha. The place of the crucifixion. The place of the skull or skull hill, if you will. He became absolutely convinced that skull hill had to be north of the Temple Mount. Now, sitting on the Mount of Olives, he would have been east of the Temple Mount, looking across at the Temple Mount, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre would be more really west Slightly northwest, but but west, and yet north is where it should be. Why? Leviticus chapter 1 verse 11, speaking of the parallel of the law of burnt offering. And I'll just quickly say this, and you can study this out on your own time, but if you read the first five chapters of Leviticus, the five different burnt offer or different offerings that were given by God to the Jewish people, all five of them are pictures of Christ. Every single one is a cameo of the Christ, the portrait of Jesus in all of the requirements for each offering. You see Jesus, it's stunning. He looked at Leviticus chapter 1 verse 11, which says, You shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar northward. And so the sacrifice of burnt offering for the sins of the people would always be sprinkled to the north. And Gordon began thinking about that, thinking, well, then the place should be north. And as he looked north, he saw, he discovered Skull Hill. Now add to that what's even more interesting. And what John reveals to us, if it has to be north, then you've got to look for somewhere that would be a rocky outcropping, a Skull Hill. And as he looked, he saw it. Golgotha. And I believe it is actual, absolute Golgotha, and it is still there today, and if you see pictures of it, or if you stand there and look at it, you see a huge face of a skull on the side of this rocky hill. But that's not the end of it. As he looked, he thought. And as we look and consider what John says here, set in the western escarpment of Skull Hill, just 500 feet, on that same hill, around the corner, lies evidence of a garden 
We know archaeologically a garden was there. There's a small wine press. There were other things found there that indicated this was a garden area. And as archaeology continued to consider that, a tomb was discovered. On the same hill, what does John tell us? He says there was, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Right there, near the site of the crucifixion. And in the garden, a new tomb. And those are amazing clues. Because as you look, as you go around to the side of Skull Hill, there is a garden. It's a beautiful garden today. Well, it's been replanted and and cared for and, and overseen by a group from Great Britain. And there is a tomb there. An ancient tomb. And in front of the tomb, there is a groove cut in the rock for rolling a stone over the entrance of the grave. It's called today the Garden Tomb. Rick, is it the tomb of Jesus? Not anymore. I mean, if it was, it was only for three days, right? Is that the actual tomb? I don't know. Might it be the tomb that Jesus borrowed? I don't know. I would recommend to you a fantastic book, an excellent book called The Weekend That Changed the World by Walker. The Weekend That Changed the World. Walker is the, is the uh, author of the book, and he goes into that, and he talks about the church of the Holy, Holy Sepulchre, and he talks about the garden tomb, and he compares and contrasts, and there's a lot of other fantastic information in this book, very well researched, very well written, and I encourage you to check that out. Whether or not this is the actual tomb, was the actual tomb, I don't know. Because God doesn't want us to focus on earthly things. You know, the location is not what's important. What happened is what's important. But I have a sense about that place. It's the last stop on our tours of Israel. By the way, there's still room. And we are going to Israel in April of this next year, and there is still room. I'd like actually to take a few more folks. And so if you have been pondering it or chewing on it or just kind of thinking about it or thinking, well, I don't know if there's any more, eh, I can't go. Don't just dismiss it out of hand. I don't know. Well, the tour is set for that. But here's the thing, Lisa. If you put a deposit on the tour and we're out of here in September, I don't think you're going to miss it. So we make our plans, and we look for, and we hearken the coming of Jesus. Thank you for your input. Uh, I'm going to do the rest myself now. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, I want to invite you all, and and keep thinking about that. Uh, There is room on the tour. And it is, if you enjoy Bible study at all, the tour of Israel is like Wednesday night on steroids. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It, It is the, you will get more grasp of the scriptures than anywhere else. Chuck Smith used to say, two weeks in Israel is like a year of Bible college, and he's not kidding. Absolutely true. So keep that in mind. You're all invited. I would love for you to come. Whether or not the garden tomb, and we'll end our tour there, but whether or not that's the actual tomb of Jesus, again, doesn't matter, because you won't find him there. You won't find his bones there. You won't find any evidence that he was there because he left. He got out. And here's where the story turns. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene 
came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. We think that's John. And said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid Him. Now you might say, Wait a minute, I thought it was Mary and a bunch of the women. They all went together. And all we hear about here is Mary. Well, that's all John was concerned with. was just Mary's side of the story. Doesn't mean the other women weren't there. And as a matter of fact, if you read Mary's words, she says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid Him. Indicating that she wasn't alone when she went to the tomb. So it all fits together. But remember, we're just getting John's perspective and John is sharing what the Holy Spirit told him, I want you to share. Sixty or so years after the other uh, gospel writers wrote their gospel accounts, John comes along and he's giving now a very specific angle on this for us to see. And so he only deals with Mary, Peter, and John in this section. And so here's Mary. Now listen. When you read these first couple of verses, there's something you should hear. Like... Like the swell of an orchestra. If you were to set music to this, it would have to be heart-pounding. It would have to be thudding and drawing you along and thrilling. An arrangement that you might expect in an epic finale. When everything has gone wrong and everything is dark and it's all over and suddenly here comes the music and you know by the music something great is going on. Something glorious is about to happen. The film is going to have a happy ending. Now why do I say that? Because of the way John writes this. And I need to point this out to you. He does it in the first two verses, and then he'll sprinkle it a few more times through the rest of the chapter. But John writes the entire first two verses in the present tense. Which means it reads like this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes early to the tomb while it is still dark. And she sees the stone already taken away from the tomb. And she runs and comes to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and says to them, they've taken away the Lord from the tomb and we do not know where they've laid Him. See how much more exciting that is? You are in the moment. John is not just writing bad Greek. You know, I'm not sure what tense to use. That was me in elementary school. This is John. He knows what he's doing. And he's writing this picture that just, it's like you get caught up in the moment with him. That he wants you to be there in the moment with Mary, right there experiencing this this vivid excitement. And that's what the Gospel of John has been doing to me for months. I don't know about you, but it's been putting me in the moment with Jesus. Best way to live. Best way to live. Living in the moment. We were talking about expecting, looking forward to the kingdom. Talking about, will we even be here beyond September? Live in the moment with Jesus. Yes, anticipate His coming. Expect His coming. But live in the moment. I did a wedding last week. That's where Cheryl and I went to. Uh, a wedding over in the Spokane area. And what the couple did, and I thought this was really cool, is they had me go out before the wedding even began and make an announcement. And the announcement was, welcome to Ray and Michelle's wedding unplugged. This was a wedding unplugged. They don't want any cell phones, they don't want any cameras, and especially no selfie sticks. Put it away. You know, at the reception you can bring that stuff out and take pictures, but they don't want any cell phones clicking throughout the ceremony. Reason being, A, they wanted to honor the photographer, but B, Ray and Michelle invite you to be in the moment. I couldn't agree more. Holidays around my house, 
Don't tell Cheryl I told you this. She's not feeling well. Give her a break. And me too. Holidays around our house, whenever the cameras come out, whenever the cell phones are up, okay, everybody gather in front of the tree. It's like, oh, oh come on, we're making memories. That's what this is for. I make memories here, not here. Now, I'm thankful that Cheryl takes the pictures or we would have none. Because if it was up to me, we wouldn't take any pictures at all. Be in the moment. And see, that's always where I'm coming from. I want to enjoy the holidays. I just want to be there. I don't want to be standing there, you know, and smile for your mother. You know, hitting the kids and everybody's crouching there. Clean. Okay, there we got our happy moment. Be in the moment. Jesus calls us to be in the moment. That's how he wants us, I absolutely believe, to live. He said in Matthew 6.34, Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Why would you lump all the trouble of tomorrow onto today? Just be in the moment. Live in the moment. Ephesians 5-15, Paul said, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Every time I open the paper, well, every time I look on the computer or laptop or whatever, and look at the news, it just gets worse. Why do I want to dump on to next week or the week after that? I want to add all that on to what I have to deal with today? No. Let it be. Be in the moment. Live for Christ now. Right now. Now, this particular day was not evil. It was glorious. Mary is in the moment. Her heart is pounding. She runs. Her excitement goes off on Peter and John, literally like a shot out of a gun that starts a race because they head off on a foot race now. Watch this, verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. (laughs) John just wants to make sure you know who won. I got there first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. Oh, by the way, that Simon Peter also comes following him and enters the tomb, and he sees the linen wrappings lying there, suddenly present tense. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had come first to the tomb, he tells us a second time to make sure, in case we missed that he won the race. Let me remind you, I was there first, he says. Who had come first to the tomb, then also entered. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. I love it. The foot race that ended in faith. They hear the exciting news. He's not there. The body's missing. What? And off they go. And as they run, you've got to imagine, what were they thinking? Did the Romans take out the body? Did the Jews take out the body? Why would somebody take away the body? It doesn't make sense. But we've got to go see. And sprinting, they get there. And John's there. And then here comes Peter, <laughs> huffing and puffing, you know, to catch up. And, and he goes right into the tomb. And then John follows in. And it is the foot race that ends in faith. How do we know? Because verse 8 says that the first disciple, the other disciple who came first to the tomb, saw and believed. Now what's interesting is verse 9 goes on to say, For as yet, as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise again from the dead. Which tells me that belief, that faith is not always about understanding. 
that I don't always know all that I need to know, all that I want to know, I don't have to. I just got to have faith. I have faith that my Father knows. I know that God knows. I know that everything is going to be revealed by Him in His time. I have faith, but not necessarily understanding. Understanding will come. But faith comes first. That's kind of backwards in our world. You know, people say, I want to understand. And then maybe I'll believe. Well, then you're not going to believe. Because no amount of understanding is going to bring you to faith. You've got to have faith so that you can understand. Now, I've got to point out three revealing perspectives here of the three disciples, Mary, John, and Peter. Because John's Gospel alone, of all the four Gospels, gives us this intimate scene. Some of you Bible students know this. If you do, just ride along with me. If you haven't heard this, think this through because I think it's, it's critically significant. And John is really saying something here that if we were reading this in the Greek, we would see right away. First off, number one, Mary sees and John saw the tomb. Chapter 20, verse 1, and chapter 20, verse 5. Mary sees the tomb. John saw the tomb. The Greek word there in both cases is the same word, blepo. He was the unknown Marx brother. (laughs) Blepo is the most common word in the Greek that just means to see. Mary saw the tomb. It's the word that you would use. You know, John comes along, he... He sees the tomb. Blepo just means to see. She sees the stone rolled away. He sees the form there of the linen wrappings from the doorway. Peter needed a closer look. So again, here comes the big fisherman huffing and puffing and rushing past John. And the second word here, Peter saw the inside of the tomb. Verse 7. He saw the linen wrappings, verse 6 and 7, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings. He saw. The word there is not blepo. Now the word is thereo. And thereo is where we get our word theory. It means to consider. It means to study something. To, to process it. To try to take it in. He's not just glancing at the tomb. Now Peter gets there and he's studying the situation. John sees the the linen wrappings in there. Peter goes in and looks. And John tells us, sees the linen wrappings and sees the face cloth folded up and set aside on its own. He's forming a notion. He's theorizing. He's thinking this through. He's studying the scene, considering the linens and the face cloth. A lot has been made of the face cloth, by the way, of the Jewish tradition and what the face cloth might be, that it was folded up and set off to the side. There are those, and I am one of them, who have compared it to a Jewish meal. And if you had a meal and it was, and it was good and you wanted to come back again, you crumpled up the napkin and threw it on top of the plate, well used. If it was a bad meal and you didn't ever want to come back to that place to dine again, you would fold up the napkin and set it to the side. So perhaps, you know, this may be a stretch, but maybe that's what Jesus was doing, folding the napkin and saying, I'm not dining here anymore. This place tastes terrible. Whatever the case may be with that, there's something more significant here. In fact, when we read John's account of what Peter saw, of what he considered, of what he studied, we begin to realize there's trouble in Turin. There's trouble in Turin, Italy. 
Turin? Yes, the place in Italy where the famous Shroud of Turin still resides. It's that 14 foot long burial shroud. Maybe you've seen it on the news or you've read about it or heard about the Shroud of, of Turin. And it's this 14 foot long burial shroud. If you look at pictures of it, you can see that it has the imprint of an apparently crucified body and face. Head to toe. There are bloodstains on this long shroud. Since 1353, it has been touted by the Catholic Church and by others as the Shroud of Christ. We found it! We've got it! The Pope released it recently for viewing. People can go see the Shroud of of Turin and bow down and worship. (laughs) It's part of the problem. There's trouble in Turin because John tells us, listen, there was a separate face cloth. That was not part of the whole shroud, the burial shroud. In fact, John goes further than that. He says there was a face cloth, and he describes the linen wrappings, not one long linen sheet. Now, Matthew, if we just read Matthew, said that he wrapped him in a linen sheet. But when you get to John, John, looking back, gives us a fuller picture. He uses the word in the Greek, othonion. Othonion, which is the plural form of linen strips. Linen strips, or you might know it more familiarly as swaddling clothes. The exact, this is amazing, the exact thing Jesus was wrapped with as a baby, linen strips, swaddling clothes, is what he was wrapped in in his burial. In fact, Jesus was wrapped by a Joseph in swaddling clothes in his birth. He was wrapped by a Joseph in swaddling clothes in his burial. Like bookends, interesting parallels. And the Bible says the linens were lying there. So you have a separate face cloth, and then you have linen strips. You don't have a long burial shroud. I hate to burst anyone's religious bubble. Well, no, I don't. I kind of like bursting religious bubbles. I get a kick out of it. I don't think the shroud of Turin is Jesus. Is it a hoax? I don't know. It could be a shroud of any crucified person discovered. Could be a host. I don't know. It's, it doesn't really matter to me. Linen strips and a separate face cloth. But there's more. The Bible says that the linen strips were lying there, literally set there. Set there. Face napkin folded neatly to the side. Now, what I said before is if you were to wrap the body and then apply a hundred pounds worth of myrrh and sweet burial spices wrapped in and with and around the cloth as each cloth is applied, it is entirely likely that the linens still bore the shape of the body. But there wasn't any body in them. The cocoon is there, but nobody's home. That's possible. That Peter is looking and going, this is nuts. Who in the world would come in here and somehow remove the face cloth, fold it up and extricate the body from the linens that are still here? How is this possible? He's studying, he's theorizing, he's he's thinking it through. This used cocoon is empty. Now, Peter would not have to theorize for long. In fact, it would be just after this that the day would show what had actually happened. 
as Peter will, and we'll see this in, in the next study, as Peter will see Jesus face to face. How marvelous. But, 50 days later, they're in the city of Jerusalem. They're at the temple. Peter would proclaim the following. Let me read this to you. Acts 2, verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Now think about what is so amazing about Peter saying that. He's in Jerusalem. Within 50 days of this happening, he is proclaiming the resurrected Jesus. And he says, he comes right out and says it. We have David's tomb here today. You can go look at it. But you won't find Jesus here. Now, all the critics, all the skeptics, all the Jewish leaders, all the Romans would have had to have done to prove all Christianity wrong was produce the body. Go to the tomb. Exhume the body and show everybody, here's the Jesus that we crucified and you can see he is dead as a doornail. Well, guess what? Now, he opened the door and walked right out of the tomb. And Peter proclaims this with absolute confidence in the city that it took place. Because he knew the proof was in the empty tomb. History records no record of an exhumed body. What it does tell us is that the followers, the enemies, and the authorities of light alike all declared the same thing, that the body of Christ was simply gone. By the way, the world is going to declare that again. The day is soon approaching when the world will say, the body of Christ is gone. Where's the church? The body's gone. You can look for them in tombs. You can look for them in church buildings. You won't find them. They are gone. It's called the rapture of the church. And it is sure as the resurrection of Jesus. The body will be gone. So Mary and John saw with their eyes. Peter studied with his mind. And finally, John, after Peter's gone in, John now says, all right, I've got to see for myself. And he goes in. Number three, John saw, we're told in verse 8, and believed. The word saw there is Eda. Eda in the Greek means to know. It's where we get our word idea. John got the idea. John goes into the tomb, and if we were going to draw a caricature, what we would draw is a light bulb going right above his head. He saw. John got it. Faith showed up. Now, as I said before, in that moment, John knew. In that moment, John believed he didn't understand. Like Peter, he's he's looking at the linens, he's looking at the face cloth, and he's going, How is this possible? But but he believed. He absolutely believed. And it just keeps getting better. Verse 11, But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. The disciples were told in verse 10, went away again to their own homes, or or to their own. So not necessarily to their homes, but they went to their own. They went to their their bros or the other people. And they're just shaking their heads and they're scratching their heads. And Peter's trying to figure it out. John's already believing. They go away. 
And Mary's still there. Standing outside the tomb, weeping. Note that, she's weeping. And so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Suddenly we're back to the present tense. She sees. Now that word sees is the present tense of thereo. So we're back to thereo. We're back to studying. She's studying. She looks in there and she sees something that she now has to consider. What's that? Two angels. (laughs) Now, put yourself in Mary's sandals. If you looked into a tomb and two angels were sitting there, what would you do? Pull out a notebook and start studying? You know? Would you scream and run? That's probably what I would have done. Ah! And I'm out of there. She's looking. There's an angel where the head of Jesus should have been. And another angel where the feet of Jesus should be. And you see the picture? You get this. It's the mercy seat. That God ordained for Israel in the making of the Ark of the Covenant. He told Moses, he said, I want you to make a mercy seat of pure gold. Exodus 25.17 Two and a half cubits long. And one and a half cubits wide. Well, why that length? Why that size? Well, it's about the it's about the length and the width of a shelf in a tomb. I want you to make it of pure gold. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work. At the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. And you make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. And the faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. Why would God tell Moses to make this thing and then in the Ten Commandments say, And you shall make no graven images. Well, Lord, isn't that a graven image? Interesting, he made the one, the singular graven image, if you will, to be placed on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could see once a year. So yes, he did have that constructed, but he put it in a place that no Jewish person would ever see it and therefore begin to worship it. And they did anyway. You know, they began to worship the Ark of the Covenant, thinking it could go to battle for them and that's another story for another time but in this moment Mary sees the two angels and she saw the fulfillment of that divine design why does God do what he does we don't always know it would take 1500 years for them finally to find out and Mary's the one who found out that's why he did the mercy seat that way two angels one at the head one at the feet there in the tomb of Christ why? Because the mercy of God depends on the resurrection of Jesus. If there is no resurrection, there is no mercy. If Jesus died and stayed dead, you will die and stay dead. But he didn't stay dead. And because he lives, I live also. Verse 13. And they said to her, now the angels begin speaking to her, and they say to her, present tense, woman, why are you weeping? And she says to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around. Okay, I'm confused here. Now she's talking to angels. She she has somehow, she's unaffected by this. 
I guarantee you, if these two exact same angels showed up here on either side of the stage this evening, we would be on our faces. And they would be saying, get up, we're just fellow servants. Don't worship us. But we would freak out. We would be blown away. And here's Mary, and they ask her, why are you weeping? She says, because I don't know where they've taken my Lord. She's having a conversation. And to make matters worse, then it says, when she said this, she turned around. I just don't know where he is. Angels! Mary! What is up with this woman? And she sees Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Okay, why not? We know in the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, at least on the road to Emmaus, in Luke chapter 24... Remember he ran into these two men, Cleopas and and another guy, and they're walking to Emmaus, and Jesus shows up and starts walking with him. And Luke tells us they were kept from recognizing him. So there was something supernatural that took place right there. They were kept, they couldn't recognize that it was him. Well here, Mary turns around, she sees Jesus standing there, and she did not know it was Jesus, and people say, well, because she was supernaturally kept from recognizing him, right? Not necessarily. John doesn't say that. He just says that she didn't realize it was him. She didn't know that it was Jesus. The travelers were kept from recognizing. John just says Mary didn't know it was him. Why not? And there are those who have come up with all kinds of theories. One, that perhaps because of the disfigurement of the beatings. Isaiah tells us he was beaten unrecognizable marred beyond the appearance of any man in in the crucifixion. But remember, this is the resurrected Christ. Now we know he'll have the wounds, the scars, in his hands, his feet, in his side. But was his face changed by all of this, such that when she looked at him, she couldn't recognize him? I think that's... Well, let's call that pastoral license. Makes for a great devotional thought. Besides the fact that that night the apostles did recognize him immediately when he shows up in the upper room. They see him, they know it's, well, they think it's a spirit, but they recognize the spirit. (laughs) Ghost! But they recognized him. My opinion, I think that Mary couldn't see because of her sorrow. I think her, her eyes were so filled with tears, so red from the weeping, I think her sorrow had the same impact in her being able to see Jesus in that moment that it did on her being able to take in that she was talking to angels and that she had turned away from angels. I mean, in this fantastic, amazing, supernatural moment, her sorrow took precedence. Her weeping was heavier. And I don't think she could see through the grief. And we seldom can. Until Jesus shows up. It is hard to see through our grief. It's hard to see what God is up to in our sorrow, in our weeping, in our tears. We, we wonder, we cry out, we question, we struggle. And we can't see Jesus when we are stuck in our sorrow. But gang, listen, Jesus always shows up. 
And when He shows up, He is the best one to penetrate our grief. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. And so He's there with Mary. She turns around. She doesn't recognize Him. Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Didn't He know? Of course He knew. That's the point. It's the right question. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Because if you think about whom you're seeking, you're not going to be weeping. You're weeping now, but think about this. Who are you looking for? And in that moment, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She she doesn't hear the question. Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? I love this. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. That's all He says. He just calls her name. Mary. She turned and says to Him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Actually, it means master teacher. Rabboni. In fact, in the Aramaic, Rab is sir. It's, you know, an honorable way to just call someone sir. If you... I won't go there. None of you have read any of the Jeeves stories, have you? P.G. Wodehouse, Rachel, the Dailies have. Some of you have read Wodehouse. This guy's hilarious. Anyway, P.G. Wodehouse writes about Jeeves, the butler. Stories like Carry On Jeeves and Ask Jeeves. And Jeeves always says to Bertie Wooster, who he's the butler for, Jeeves always says, yes, sir. So he could be saying, yes, Rob. That's what the word means. Rabbi is honorable teacher. But she doesn't call him Rab. She doesn't call him Rabbi. She calls him Rabboni or Rabboni. And it literally means master. Master. I have a feeling she had called him that before. Rabboni. And Jesus said to her, verse 17, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Her eyes were suddenly opened. Suddenly, the tears were gone. The weeping was gone. The blurriness was history. He says, Mary, and she sees Him. Listen, her eyes were opened, not because she saw Him, but because she heard Him. She had already seen Him and she wasn't seeing clearly. But when she heard His voice, Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice. I know them and they follow Me. John 10.37 Jesus says, Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come into Him and and will dine with Him and and He with Me. You know, He's talking about the church there in Revelation 3.20. It's not an evangelism passage. It's a church passage. I'm knocking on the door of your church, man. But note when he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice. So it's not just... It's... Anybody home? It's the Lord. Hello. And He's calling your name. And it's when we hear Jesus that faith comes. It's not when we see Him. As we will see a little further down, not tonight, we're not going to have time to get there now, but He will say, because you have seen Me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Jesus 
is knocking on the heart of Mary. And with the simple calling of her name, Mary, she hears Him and faith comes. In the moment, she hears Him. Paul said that's how it works. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the Word, the spoken Word, literally the voice of Christ. Romans 10.17 There is an intimacy between the follower of Jesus and the Lord Jesus Himself that is far deeper than seeing. It goes to the realm of hearing. Thomas will learn that. The disciples will come to understand that. Blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Let me ask you a question. Followers of Jesus tonight, are you blessed in knowing Him? Do you realize that because we have been chosen to live in this day, in this age, we are more blessed than the eleven who saw Jesus on the day of resurrection? That your faith is deeper. That your relationship can be richer because you believe without seeing. You believe because you hear. You hear what? You hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. He who has ears to hear, Jesus says, let him hear. Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 30, 21, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. And I fully believe He intends for us to hear Him. But be careful with that. Don't put words into His mouth. We're very casual in Christianity saying, well, the Lord told me to do this. Well, the Lord said to do that. And then it turns out all wrong. I must have misheard Him. Yeah, you think? Don't throw it around so easily. You be sure. If you're going to tell someone I heard from the Lord on something, be sure you heard from the Lord. Now I believe that He does speak. And we can hear Him. But I need to hear what He has to say, not what I want Him to say. And there's a big difference. Mainly, you know what, more than anything else, what I really want to hear Him say? I want to hear Him say my name. I can't wait till I hear the voice of Jesus say, Rick, that's what I want to hear. Because when He speaks my name, everything is alright. And again, He says to her, stop clinging to Me. Now that's interesting. Is this because He had some kind of untouchable essence that she might mess up if she tried to touch Him? No, 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 touch. I'm in resurrected form. You know, light shining. No, no. It's, it's far more simple than that. She is clinging on to him as if she would never let him go. Kind of the, you know, I've lost you once. I'm not letting go now. She's hanging on. John Corson says she tackled him. I don't know if she did. But clearly she grabs hold of him. And she's hanging on to him such that Jesus has to say, Mary, stop clinging to me. Don't be all clingy. Ew. Cooties, you know. Why? He says, because I haven't yet ascended. In other words, I'm not going anywhere. Not just yet. Don't cling to me. I'm right here. I'm not going to slip out on you. Not yet. I'm right here. But there's something else going on here. Something I think that's greater. She is hanging on to him, clinging as if she would never let him go. But the time had come for her to let go of Rabboni. She needed to let go of Rabboni, that is, the Jesus she had known. 
It was time for Mary to let go of the past and begin now to cling to the Jesus that she would know in a far greater way. Guess what? 40 days Jesus is going to appear. 40 days He's going to be around after this day. But then He does go. Then He does ascend to the Father. And then Mary would really start to get to know Him. As you have. As I have. We have to know Him as He is, not as He was. Which is why we say around Christmas time, the baby is not still in the manger. I don't get to know Jesus as a little harmless baby. That's safe to keep Him in the manger. Get Him out where He's dangerous. I don't know Jesus walking in sandals and a robe in the Galilee. It's romantic. It's beautiful. I like the idea. That's not the Jesus I know. The Jesus I know is the glorified, resurrected, powerful, awesome Christ who has saved me from my sin by the shedding of His own blood. The Jesus I know is powerful enough to deal with everything in my life and your lives and the lives of everybody who's ever lived if we'll give in to Him. The Jesus I know is Lord, is God in the flesh. And that's, that's what John's been pointing to throughout the entire Gospel, isn't it? He is God. You've got to know Him as God. And I shudder to think that far too many people who call themselves Christians do not see Jesus as God. They see Him as bro. I have a friend in Jesus. And I do. I do. He is my friend. But He is my God. And what Mary needs to see, let me let Paul tell you what Mary needs to see. No longer Rabboni. Now she needs to see Jesus as He truly is. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, listen, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Stop clinging to the flesh, Mary. Stop looking to me as I was. The time has come for this to change. We recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Paul says, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Mary, you're not going to know me like that. You're not going to see me like that anymore. I am far more than Rabboni. I am Christ and God. And Mary needed to let go of the Jesus she thought she knew. And get to know the Jesus as He is. It was time for her to see this. To know this. Peter calls Him in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, our God and Savior, Christ Jesus. John calls Him in 1 John 5.20, the true God and eternal life. James, Jesus' own brother in the flesh, His brother in the flesh called himself a bondservant of God and of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Wouldn't even mention that he was brother. Jude, another brother of Jesus, called himself in Jude 1, verse 1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You see, they all finally had come to know and to see him as Christ and Lord. Don't cling to him, Mary. He is the Christ who will never let you go. 
verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. What had he said? Stop clinging to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. He would. But go to my brother and say, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. So Jesus is declaring at the same time he is deity, he is also declaring this amazing familiarity with his brothers and sisters here in the world. So Mary comes announcing to the disciples. Mary is the first announcer. She's the first evangelist. She's the first missionary. The first to bring the gospel to a lost and frightened lot. She is the first announcer. That's what the word is there where it says she uh, came announcing to the disciples. The word is angelos. Angel. Mary is the first angel. She's the angel messenger. Do you realize that Mary Magdalene is the first female angel mentioned in the Bible? I'm using the word angel in the context that it's meant. Messenger. That's all angel means. Messenger. A messenger of God. And in this case, Mary is a messenger. What do you mean the first female angel? Every other angel mentioned in Scripture. Two a mention. Every single one. It's masculine. Except Mary. And ladies, that should be encouraging. Mary is the, is the one who comes declaring. Mary is the angel. Isaiah 52 verse 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Oh, He has beautiful feet. What about she? And Jesus chose for this Mary to be the announcer of the resurrection. The first one to declare. The first female angel. God chose this assignment to go to a woman. And that shouldn't be lost on us. Because in the day and in the age, that was unheard of. The rabbis actually taught that a woman was never to bring a teaching or a message of Scripture. If she did, she'd just mess it up. The Jewish faith, while Torah does honor women singularly, and in beautiful ways, was very masculine. And here, Peter and John had both been at the tomb. Why not Peter? Why not Peter? Why couldn't Peter see Jesus first and go rushing? I mean, he's the first pope. Right? Why couldn't he see Jesus first and go rushing back to the apostles? Well, he probably would have been too out of breath when he got there. Besides, John would have gotten back there first. So why not John? Why couldn't John be the first one to see Jesus? He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He wrote this glorious gospel by the inspiration of the Spirit. Why not John? Why Mary? Ladies, sisters, brothers. Because in that resurrection, the curse had been lifted. In that moment, it all changed. What do you mean? Genesis 3.16 To the woman, Eve, God said, 
I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Now some of you ladies will say, well, I've given birth and that hadn't changed. Okay, I'll give you that one. He says, in pain you will bring forth children. Yet, and here's the curse, yet your desire will be for your husband. Literally, your desire is going to be to rule over your husband. Your desire is going to be to be the boss. And he will rule over you. And brothers and sisters, that is not the way it's supposed to be. That was the result of the curse in the Garden of Eden. You're going to want to rule, but he gets to rule. That's because you ate the fruit first. And it's a curse. But on this day, everything changed. Jesus has already, in this moment, in the resurrection, begun setting things back in order. What do you mean? Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Now there are different roles that we have been given. And there are different ways that that, that the Lord has has taught us to, to be fulfilled in our lives. But all levels, it, it all levels out. The spiritual playing field, level before the Lord, that we might all, male and female alike, bear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not a masculine message, it is a human message from God that all people are called to declare. And you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, why is there all this, you know. Fighting and backfighting and the whole male-female problem still goes on in culture because culture's not in Jesus. You realize if the whole world all accepted Jesus at once, that there would be no more need for now, the National Organization of Women, they, they would cease to exist as an organization. It would be unnecessary because men and women would all be one in Christ Jesus and would recognize our differences and our uniqueness As ways that God created us to function together and to flow together. And we see that actually work pretty well in the church. Except when we let our cultural biases in. Mary was the first. You want to be angelic? You want to be like Mary? Declare the gospel. You come announcing Jesus. Declaring His word. Tell them that you have seen the Lord. Well... I don't know if I have seen the Lord. If you've heard Him, you've seen Him. If you have heard Him, you have seen Him. Have you heard His Word tonight? You have seen the Lord. Hebrews 13 verse 5, He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And I guarantee you, even after the ascension of Jesus, Mary knew His presence for the rest of her life and on into eternity. Amen.